Hi folks, welcome to episode 6 of Sparks of Madness, Grey Rainer here, um, and this week we have our first female guest, um, and so um, I should point out that we haven't deliberately not had female guests for the first five episodes, I just uh, booked people I knew um, uh, had is- issues they wanted to talk about, and I, w- I was already familiar with, um, and, uh, and Maxine Wade, our guest this week, is someone I haven't actually met, but I've heard loads about, and um, I was aware of some of the issues that she's been really open about on social media and stuff, and thought she'd make a great guest, so our first, but definitely not our last for female guest, um, in this episode, we talk about various issues. Quick trigger warning, we do talk about um, issues such as self-harming and other issues you might expect to come about um, during a conversation in which we cover bipolar uh, disorder, borderline personality disorder, uh, being sectioned, um, and all of those issues. So, um, you know, just tread carefully if you're someone who, who might uh, need to be wary of those kinds of triggers. But it is a good conversation. A couple of times the audio gets a little bit poppy, a little bit hissy, as you might expect in the middle of the COVID lockdown. Uh, we recorded this a few weeks back. Um, we're doing this all remotely, and sometimes the tech isn't brilliant. But generally, it's good sound quality. Um, I think it's a good, interesting episode, and I'd like to hear what you have to say. So give it a listen, uh, like, subscribe, um, send us your feedback. We've had some feedback from people both inside and outside the comedy industry. Um, and also feel free to suggest any tweaks to the format or um, any guests that you think would make an interesting guest. I can't promise I'll be able to get them on because, you know, if you name a big name, they're going to say, well, who the fuck is Graham Rayner? Why would I want to be on his podcast? But um, perhaps you might suggest someone who would be a really good addition to this but anyway i'll stop waffling on um it is episode six of uh, sparks of madness and it's maxine wade enjoy okay so i'm really pleased to welcome for episode six of sparks of madness uh, maxine wade hi maxine how are you doing i'm all right graham how are you love I'm really good, thanks. I'm really, really good, and I'm really grateful for you to coming on. Um, and uh, and you're our first female guest, which I'm not sure quite how that's happened, but I think it's a combination of um, bad planning on my part, uh, the massive imbalance in the industry yep. between men and women performing, and uh, probably the fact that that uh, all of the people I really know are men. Um, I'm not very good at mixing with <laughs> loads of people in the industry, so it's my bad. But thanks for coming. I'm really glad to have you. Um, yeah, we've not actually met before. You're the first of the, the guests on the pod that I've had that I haven't crossed paths with, but I have heard a lot about you from from sort of mutual friends or people oh, yeah. we, we probably both know. Um, and um, I, I'm sort of sick of hearing about how good you are, really. Oh, thank um, you. Oh, thank so you. how long have you been performing? So technically, well, well, the truth is, I first started in stand up in two thousand fourteen, July two thousand fourteen, um, and I did my first gig at Verve Comedy Cellar, um, and then I started gigging sort of all over the north, really. After that, and I continued with it for about two and a half years, I suppose, sort of the end of twenty sixteen, uh, sort of beginning of twenty seventeen, I sort of kind of it went on the back foot a little bit um, and I started to do sort of less gigs and then I broke up with another comedian that I was going out with at the time who was also on the comedy circuit and it was all anyone could talk about for about three seconds then I decided um, because of that I kind of wanted just not to be in the scene anymore Um, and then I started again sort of 
November, December of last year, I've sort of been reborn and started gigging again, basically. So um, I do like to say, you know, since December, because, you know, it's easier to get into, you know, so you think you're funny, but there we go. Hmm. <laughs> we won't tell them that you've done that. Um, so uh, I suppose the thing is you get you just you were just getting up to some kind of um, you know match fitness and being full up to full speed, and then lockdowns hit. How's lockdown affecting you? Um, well, I am actually an NHS key worker. Woo! Hold your applause, everyone. Um, but um, so <laughs> it's to be honest, Graham, it's not really been much different for me. I mean, the way not to really get into, but. The way that we work has changed a lot, um, and that's taken some getting used to. Um, but apart from not being able to humiliate myself in a room full of strangers in my spare time, lockdown's really not been that much different for me. So, yeah. And are you missing gigging? I'm really missing gigging. Um, I miss... I miss everything about it. I miss the green room chat. I miss talking to other comics. I miss bitching about people on the car chair home. I miss absolutely everything. Hmm. I love it, Graham. Um, but I've been doing, you know, little bits sort of online. Um, my show, um, Maxine Takes the Bins Out Live, has been getting upwards of 20 viewers, which is probably more than most gigs that I've done. So, yeah, <laughs> every cloud. Fantastic. I admire your, uh, I think the word that my mum would have used for that would be pluck. I don't know whether that's still a word people use. <laughs> Absolutely giving away my age there as well, but I think it's a good, <laughs> good attitude to have. Um, and I, th- I think that, I suppose in some ways, um, the fact that you're still working and your job um, is is one that you probably have to give a lot of focus to at the moment, like a lot of NHS workers, um, then that hopefully won't mean it won't have hit you as hard as, as some of our friends in the industry whose sort of sole income maybe was from comedy or their sole interaction. Some some I know some people who, you know, the only time they really got out in the real world was doing comedy, if you can call comedy the real world. So um how so your mental health history is um, quite an interesting one from the sort of conversations we've had about it online. Tell us a bit about your your um, issues or challenges that you've had with your mental health. Well, where do I begin? Chapter one, the reckoning. No, I um, I think I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, I would say. And originally, if I think about it now, it probably started about nine or ten years old and probably started becoming more severe um always kind of was really depressed as a child um I have a brother who's got um really severe autism and uh, learning difficulties and things like that so it was very difficult for me growing up because um not only was there a lot of obviously caring responsibilities but I kind of I didn't get any sort of attention um I did get some attendance I get any attention because my mum and dad will probably listen to this at some point but um I, I, I didn't get as much attention as a normal child would um and I ended up becoming very depressed and I was a child that used to spend a lot of time on their own um so I say when I was about to cut this long story so when I was about 14 I started self-harming um just feeling really depressed sort of low in mood and it only really came to a head when I was 18 when I started at university um and I ended up having a breakdown um ended up being diagnosed as bipolar I ended up I wasn't sectioned I was involuntary um but I was there for about two weeks and they diagnosed me with bipolar saying I'd moved swings because I'd had like hallucinations and I was hearing voices at one time um lovely um and yeah <laughs> 
they're never really good company. You know, when you hear a voice, it's never really good company. It's just usually like really depressing, just telling you how worthless you are. But I, I, I really kind of lost the plot. I was very paranoid and believed that everybody was out to get me. And um, I even believed that, um, I remember I was watching the news once and David Cameron was on the news and I thought that he was talking to me personally. Um, yeah, and I thought everything was... I don't know if you'd have been talking to you personally. He probably was out to get you, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm working class. Yeah. He hates me. Yeah, I know that. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's, I was really sort of out of it. I was at university and I was sharing a flat with, like, four other girls and they. I felt I feel awful for them because... I was a complete mess. And to describe what I was like, I was really low for like, for like days or about a week. And then I was like really manic. And I was, I was just, I was just, I was, I was a mess. Um, and I ended up being, you know, put, taken to the hospital, ended up dropping out, uh, was diagnosed as bipolar. And then I was in hospital for two weeks. And then I was in like community, like psychiatric hospital for about three months where you go in um, every day and then you go home at night. So it's kind of like having a full-time job of being mad, but um, it's not as fun. You just basically play board games and, you know, cry about your childhood. So I did that, and then um, I sort of relapsed, sort of like for the like the following two years. This was all when I was about 18 to 21. Um, ended up being sort of in and out of hospital, and then I was re-diagnosed because they like to all sorts I feel like psychiatrists like to stick a lot of different opinions on you um was that I have borderline personality disorder um but that one at first for a long time I didn't accept that diagnosis and now I have to agree um I'm not saying I'm not I, I do think I have bipolar traits because I definitely still feel like I get periods where I'm manic and I can't really explain why that is um but I definitely think the borderline diagnosis fits well, but it took a long time for me to accept that because it's mm. a diagnosis that is quite stigmatised. I don't know if you know much about Yeah, it's so um, borderline personality disorder is something I don't have a lot of experience or knowledge about other than sort of just hearing exactly what you just said about sometimes the diagnosis that people get is... is it's sort of suspected that people might have it and it sounds like it's probably quite hard to diagnose. I don't think a lot of people will necessarily know what it is. I know a lot of people are more, probably more aware of bipolar. Um, yeah. There's been some high profile people who've talked about it. The likes of Stephen Fry have talked about it yeah. in great detail and, and I think people were were used to it when it was probably still known as, I think it used to be called manic depressive. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. And, and the, the, the I think the thing that I worry about with bipolar is that it's one of those things that sometimes people throw the phrase around. Uh, I was yeah. talking to um, on a previous podcast to to Jim Bays, James Bays, about this, the the self diagnosing that people do sometimes of you know some people sometimes people say oh I'm I'm a bit OCD or I'm a bit autistic or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think bipolar sometimes is one of those things where people say I'm a little bit bipolar. And, yeah. I mean, my wife sometimes says it about me, and and she says it knowing my mental health history which is largely depression and anxiety mm-hmm. um, and but she says I think you've got a touch sort of a touch of that but she does mean that in an almost clinical way um, she's not coming from a total position of ignorance but I think some other people sometimes just go oh look at me I'm a bit bipolar as if it's just a, <laughs> a thing to throw around without really knowing yeah. the 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 depth of the, the lows and the and the the real sort of highs, yeah. and, highs and how debilitating both ends of the scale can be mm-hmm. um, 
you know, just because you might have mood swings doesn't mean you're bipolar. No. But tell me about borderline personality disorder because I don't really understand it. Or and and I suppose what I'd be looking for is what are the signs that you might? What are the? How does it manifest itself in your behaviour and how does it impact you day to day? Brilliant question. Right. So borderline personality disorder. I think there's like 10 or 11 personality disorders sort of in the DSM, which is like kind of the American Diagnostic Statistical Manual. In the UK, we use something else. I can't remember the name of it. You might want to edit it out. So I'll start again. So borderline personality disorder. It's a disorder um, which basically is linked with essentially trauma in childhood. And it's a disorder that does typically manifest itself um in like teenagers or late adolescence or like early 20s and it is a disorder that is sort of linked more to women or women are more likely to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder it is something up to debate to debate whether there are actually more men who actually have borderline personality disorder but they are not seem to be diagnosed with it by clinicians if you know what I mean uh, they're more likely to be diagnosed with a mood disorder like bipolar or anxiety or depression and what it is, is basically the sort of nine criteria for diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And you need to meet five of them to get a diagnosis. But the main sort of ones is categorised by really bad instability in mood. Um, so that's the reason why a lot of people who have BPD get misdiagnosed as having bipolar, because you tend to have a lot of, you know, instability in mood and being quite quick to react, quite a reactive mood. So say... If someone upsets me, I can, you know, be be quite down about it and be quite down about it for a while. But the difference with bipolar is the mood swings are quite the more frequent and they don't tend to last as long. Whereas if somebody's truly bipolar, you would be manic for like at least a week or depressed for at least a week, if not longer. Um, other lovely um, traits of it include black and white thinking, so kind of thinking something either is or it isn't which is kind of a lot of the narrative of the press and like the world at the moment as well. I think we live in a very borderline world. And but it's something that I've all, I I'm a lot better with it now and I'm now able to sort of be aware that I'm doing it, but just very much I either like somebody or I completely dislike them. Um yeah, um also fear of abandonment um is <clears throat> probably one of the biggest ones borderline personality disorder is, you know, being obviously usually usually stemming from trauma but not necessarily but just really afraid of you know your relationships your partner your friends your family might leave you um and kind of desperately trying to stop that from happening um in any way possible um no matter how sort of manipulative that is um and I guess that's kind of why I didn't accept the diagnosis because it's very the general public don't really know what it is, but in the world of psychiatry, it's very highly stigmatised amongst um, psychiatrists, amongst mental health practitioners, because it is seen as a disorder of people who are quite manipulative, because I think if you're quite emotionally distressed a lot of the time and you're desperate to stop people from leaving you as well, especially because your own behaviour is probably you know, not great um, and he's mm. probably pushing people away, a lot of the things that you do um, you know, can be seen as quite manipulative but that's not the all of what it is and it's a disorder that as I say is essentially based in childhood trauma and a lot of the people that I have met um who hold have BPD have all had the sort of similar issues in childhood in adolescence that I've had and this is how it's manifested itself and another big part of it is 
reckless behaviour. So it, a, a lot of people with borderline personality disorder um, have sort of impulse, make a lot of impulsive decisions or they have a lot of self-destructive tendencies. So like self-harm, um, eating disorders, promiscuity, drink, drugs, you know, driving recklessly, all sort of like different things like that. It's kind of, it's a very destructive disorder it's kind of the, the way that it, when, I, when I describe it when you know I describe about how when I'm at the diagnostic sort of criteria it, it's it's hard to sort of imagine it but it's more sort of just someone who's really in in a turmoil and is trying to lash out at themselves more than anything else but ends up pushing everyone that they love sort of away from them and for me I think how it manifests itself in me is, you know, I've basically done all of those things. I, I, I had bulimia, I self-harmed, um, I slept around, I made a lot of impulsive decisions, a lot of impulsive decisions around money. Um, I had a lot of problems with drugs, I had problems with drinking, um, and it was kind of like I needed to crutch constantly of something destructive to fill the emptiness that I had because it just... It felt like a chronic emptiness, and I say felt because I'll go into it later, but I do feel I've dealt with a lot of the issues that I've had around it. But just a chronic feeling of emptiness, and that is probably the main symptom of it, is that there's a hole that you cannot fill. Um, mm. That's not a pun from me for once. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm not going to comment on because it would be very easy to go off down that route at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, you've, said, you've said a lot there that's real food for thought, and I think that... The, uh, um, the key thing is that anyone listening who sort of feels they're ticking some of those boxes doesn't automatically assume they've got this issue. But I think that possibly the challenge in diagnosis, because I mentioned that, that I'd heard about, you know, a lot of the diagnoses are kind of suspected or elements of BPD. And I think that a lot of those things in isolation ha- manifest themselves with other mental health issues, which yeah. is probably why you had this issue with is it bipolar initially and mm-hmm. you know is it a bit of column a a bit of column b kind of thing and i think you know when you talk about some of those other behaviors the most common diagnosis with men as far as i'm aware is, is depression normally with anxiety issues as well and a lot of those things manifest themselves there possibly not things like that i mean when i was depressed i, I didn't self-harm and i and i never got to the stage of wanting to kind of hurt myself but things like the sort of irrational decision-making destructive behavior and stuff like that when I had my breakdown that was definitely how it manifested itself was just making really quick decisions and not no matter who tried to talk me out of them no this is the way I've got to do it and it it rings a lot of bells and, and I can only imagine you know if you've had that issue for a length of time just how challenging that can be you said about um using those things to to fill a hole in your life do you feel like now comedy is starting to fill that gap a bit um yeah um because I, I do get I do get a lot out of comedy comedy is something that I've wanted to do since I was nine years old and had an assembly and we all had to tell a joke and I remember I spent hours literally thinking of the joke that I was going to tell and Can you remember the joke yeah it was um horse walks into a bar and the barman says why the long face classic um and then I'll just like yeah I want to be a comedian that's what I want to do I want to I want to tell jokes um and I do get a lot out of comedy and just making people laugh in general 
it makes me really happy and I feel it does give me something to focus on. Um, but the other thing that I feel has helped with sort of coming to terms with BPD and sort of dealing with it is surrounding myself with nice people who are understanding and caring and not also toxic and also dialectical behavioural therapy which is the therapy that I did um, which is the therapy for borderline personality disorder which by the way is an awful name for a disorder it, is, I mean, it, is, it, makes, it makes it sound like they're calling you a bit of a prick yeah it? prick disorder I, personality is it has it's disordered it's yeah yeah your personality shit mate and it's like, yeah. like I'm, my my personality is great i mean i've got you know um i think a better name for it would be mad cow disease but that's already taken so <laughs> it's shame in it um um you mentioned, was it dialectical behavioural therapy? How yeah. is that different from the most common therapy most people have with mental health issues these days is cognitive behavioural therapy, which I've got to say felt to me like it did no, me, me no good at all. Um, well, my, my issue is that I feel like I need to understand the problem before I can tackle the problem. Yeah. And CBT to me didn't give me any understanding of what the root causes were. It just said, if you're feeling like this, this is what you should try and do or what can you try and do. So I, I ended up just self-managing really. But what's your take on, on this other therapy time because I've never heard of that before have you not so it is related to cognitive behavioral therapy I'm afraid to say I've done CBT as well and I thought it was rubbish it didn't work for me it might work for other people but it didn't work for me CBT a, a DBT sorry it's um, a woman um, from America called Marjolina who devised it and it's basically a mixture of cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and sort of Middle Eastern Middle Eastern I keep saying things wrong with this, Graham. Sorry, you're going to have to edit this. Mm -hmm, that's fine. So DBT is a mixture of CBT and, like, um, Eastern meditation. Why would you have Middle Eastern meditation? It, I don't think... It, well, I'm not aware that they do a lot of that in the Middle East, but, yeah. I don't... I think they don't have to do. They need it. Exactly, uh, yeah. Tell them right out, you know. Get don't ISIS don't. to get some uh, chakras going on. Yeah, play a bit of Enya, ISIS. Sort, of, sort them out, no. It's, it's a mixture of... But the, the, the stipulation with it is it's, the, it's the delivered in group therapy form. So basically you do it all with a group of strangers. So at first I was offered it years ago and I was like, I do not like the sound of that whatsoever. And I suppose, you know, a couple of years ago I was at a really low sort of point, um, stopped doing comedy, my relationship ended, I didn't have a job, everything was going really wrong for me. My BPD was really bad and I was being really destructive and I decided I've got nothing to lose, I might as well try it. And now I think, well you know humiliate myself in a room full of strangers you know what's the difference between group therapy and comedy you know but it's it's it works as a group because it's sort of about a lot of what you talk about is you know problems that you're having as a group collectively and it's actually the other people in the group more than the therapists themselves that sort of helped me um just being around people that had been through the same experiences that me and we're sort of doing the best to come through it. And we all developed a very lovely little friendship um, group, even though we weren't meant to be friends with other people in the group, which didn't really make a right lot of sense to me because it's like saying, oh, you're all really lonely and struggling with life. Don't make friends with people you've got loads in common with. It won't work. Um, but I think it's more from like a safeguarding point of view. But, yeah, I found it really helpful. And it sort of delivers your skills like sort of about like, distress tolerance and like how to cope with sort of sort of suicidal behaviors or like self-harm urges and how to deal with that but it's more it's enabled me to kind of try and think of things 
objectively rather than this sort of black and white thinking and I still do fall into the trap of it but a lot of like so like one of the skills in DBT is about checking the facts whether the emotions fit the facts so for example you know there have been times during this pandemic because I do live on my own where I have felt really down and you know there was a whole point um I don't want to go into too much at work you know the whole PPE thing which Mm. has been quite widely documented where I was very anxious about where I was going to get the right PPE and then I was really really upset about it and then I kind of realized well it's rational to feel like that and sometimes that's what I liked about it is it was sort of quite validate it's a very validating therapy in that it says a lot of the times your emotions are justified but it's about where you sort of go with it moving forward but I found it really helpful for me but more so meeting the group of people who I'd been through all the same things and done all, it was it was incredible. Like I'd, I'd I'd found my people, I loved it. And they and it was actually my therapist who said, You're really funny. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go back into comedy. And I remember my last meeting with her, I said, You know what, I've I'm gonna go back into comedy and she she was so happy. She was so happy, That's I couldn't good. believe it. That's yeah. really positive, isn't it? What was it like when you took the plunge then to go back into it after having sort of stepped away from it because it'd been how long, how long a gap was it oh we're talking like probably like two and a half years and i never thought so i'm starting again then isn't it it was like i have started again and it was nerve-wracking but i actually did silky's workshop um because yeah. it was the first workshop that um silky did at the halifax comedy festival and silky's so lovely and he's a brilliant teacher and I would recommend Silky's Cortis to everyone. And he does put you at ease and has fun with it. And I just, um, you know, did, you know, the, the gig at the end of the workshop. And it was, it was all right. And I enjoyed it. And I kind of was like, I got the bug again. And I was like, I really, really missed this. And I have a lot more that I want to say. So then, you know, I did my first proper gig um, back at the Comedy Balloon in Manchester. And then just sort of went from there and just sort of been gigging out and about um, where I can. Um, and we're starting, you know, getting, you know, got my name out there. We're starting to get a good reputation, good feedback, starting getting booked in for gigs. And then this pandemic happened, lovely. I'm never meant to get in there. from everyone, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I suppose my question would be, a couple of questions from a comedy point of view then. Did you feel like your act was sort of, particularly different after such a long time off and and obviously for for a long time off for really quite profound reasons do you feel like you were a different act or do you think it was kind of back in the saddle find your groove again and and people who'd seen the Maxine Wade of five years ago on stage would say yeah it's the same Maxine now um I think anyone listening to this who's seen my act from a few years ago will know that I really have toned it down a bit. I am more of a straight stand-up now. Um, although, you know, I, I feel like I'm more myself on stage, whereas before I used to hide around a lot of gimmicks. I used to do a very odd routine, which was mental health-themed, where I called it my bipolar burlesque, where basically... It, w- it was very funny, it was very bizarre, where I would like to kind of take my clothes off and be happy, and the next minute I'd take my clothes off and be really sad and pretend to swallow a load of tablets. You wouldn't have to have been there. Um, I would describe it, you know, I once, you know, dressed up as in a burka. I, I did a lot of stuff to kind of shock people, and it was all very extreme and very over the top and, you know, very hysterical. It wasn't necessarily sort of a slice of you. It was more, what can I do to... 
evoke a big reaction. Was that yeah, was? yeah, and I was like, and I now what are you, what's your act like now? Because I've heard a few of my, sort of, as I say, my friends have, because I book a few, I, when gigging is happening, I book a few gigs around to West Yorkshire, and and I've had people say you need to get Maxine on, and then obviously this hit. So what's your act like now? Talk me through it. It is, um, well, I like to say that I've, you know, I'm sort of, my standard has come up, but it is, a lot of it is um, about me comparing my vagina to Brexit, but it is a very funny bit, um, but it's more sort of conversational, a little bit political, I do have a lot of jokes where I talk about my mental health on stage, but it's more um, just proper stand-up, I, I have, uh, you know, a few puns, it is quite, I do have a bit of a carry-on sort of sense of humour, do you know what I mean? Um but it's it's more it's more me. It's it's my personality. It's a bit daft. It's a bit silly. Um and it's just good honest stand up. Um but it's a lot better than what I used to do before, which was honestly it was terrible. And anyone You're more who, proud of your act now than you were before. Oh absolutely. Honestly it's embarrassing and I'm honestly anyone who booked me before, I'm really sorry it was really, really <laughs> bad. But we we try these things, you know. I did go, yeah, to, I did go to drama school, you know. We've got to try these things, but you know, I've been in the real world enough. The drama school's come completely out of me, and now I'm just me. So yeah, I'm so really. When you talk oh. about mental health on stage, then, so I I only have I do probably about three minutes about mental health. I, I talk about antidepressants and their effect on my cock, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I very briefly talk about my sort of not memories of my childhood but what I know about my because my, my natural father was an alcoholic um, right. life beater from Glasgow so I talk about him and I make a couple of near the knuckle jokes about him um, but when I find that when I because most of my normal material is just a bit of smut bit of bit of sort of a Same. modern day kind of bit of blue for the dads kind of thing yeah. that Kay would have said um, and I'm always trying to sort of push just get close to the line but I find when I mention my mental health and I, I just I come out and say I had a breakdown. And um, when I talk about that, the, the instant I mention it, the first thing I feel is I have to immediately um, put the room at ease that it's yeah. not going to be. I'm not going to stand there and depress the fuck out of them, or I'm yeah. not going to make them sad, or it's not because you, my feeling is. I remember the very first time I mentioned it. I sort of looked at the room, and you know how you can feel the energy in the room oh, change. Absolutely. I just thought it's got cold in here. <laughs> you know? it um, do you find that happens, or do you do it in a way where it, they don't get a time to to worry, or, or what? Um, I I do feel like I completely agree. I think it is a topic that really divides the room, and I can't believe that now it's still something that upsets people so much as well. Like I can tell jokes about Prince Andrew, you know, fucking minors. Till yeah. the cows come home. Nobody backed an eye, but as soon as I say, you know what, I was really sad once. <gasps> we didn't come out to listen to this. Yeah, um, yeah. It's weird, isn't it? But um, at my kind of, when I talk about it, it's, it's uh, my bit in my set about my mental health, it's mainly like, so I have like one liners and a lot of jokes. So I kind of, yeah, I have put a lot of jokes into it because to sort of, sort of say, like, kind of bring them back and kind of ease the tension in the room like because I kind of precursed it by sort of saying you know I do suffer from mental health problems one in four people will suffer from a mental health problem at some point in their life and if you're at a comedy gig and you're wondering who the one in four are it's usually the person holding the microphone yeah um yeah to try and to try and just you know kind of makes a bit laid back and a little bit like I kind of you know and I know like it's a common 
trope, like it kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Like comedy and mental illness. But well, that's where this this whole podcast was born from, really. Was um, I started in comedy about eighteen months ago, um, and um, quickly became aware that it, it didn't feel like a myth. The, the thing before of you know famous comedians who've got that kind of depressive tendencies and, and some of the high profile names that have talked about mental health issues and stuff like that mm-hmm. um didn't feel like a myth it felt like almost everybody I spoke to about it had something in their past or some some sort of issues that yeah you know and then you think well of course they fucking have because it's not normal at all to go do you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna go out spend an hour and a half driving somewhere to do five minutes in front of people I don't know, <laughs> talking about my most intimate things and hoping they find them funny. I think that you need to be somehow a bit fucked in the head. Oh, I definitely. It's a normal thing. Um, so I just think, do you think, it, obviously you use it as material, but do you think generally in terms of um, your performance or whatever, does it? do you think it helps you or do you think it harms you that you've got these underlying issues i think i think it helps me to be honest with you because honestly Graham, me personally um i can only like talk about my own experience but i've been through so much in my life um with, with my mental health and sort of the sort of the trauma that caused it and even with you know a lot of the reason why i stopped doing stand-up you know was because i brought down my relationship broke down my ex and he did comedy and a lot of it was I just hid myself away but I've kind of come to terms with that and I just don't care anymore do you know what I mean I just kind of it's very freeing and I feel like I very I don't really care what people think of me I enjoy it I enjoy making people laugh I think I'm all right at it and it's something that it, it, it gives me a lot of pleasure because you know with, as I say, with my day job, it is quite stressful and it's the perfect juxtaposition because with that, I, it's all about other people, whereas comedy, I feel like it's all for me and this is all, you know, and obviously the audience as well, yeah, they're important, but it's all about me and, yeah, I think, I think I, I don't know, has it helped me? Well, yeah, because it, it if I didn't have my mental illness, I'd, my set would be like five minutes shorter. Um... And I won't be talking to you now. So yeah, it definitely has helped. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know I know of people who who sort of say that sometimes the, the aspect, the way it affects your personality, sometimes in some, you know, you know, a lot of people with mental health issues are oversharers at sometimes and oh, massively I... undersharers at other times. And you know, if if you're since I've started talking about, I started talking about mental health way before I started doing comedy, but it made me when I went into comedy think, do you know what? There's nothing I can say on stage about myself that I'm going to embarrass myself with because if I'm owning it, then what's the problem? Exactly. So if I want to go on and talk on, go and talk about erectile dysfunction or or nervous breakdowns or whatever, then unless I, you know, why would I talk about it if I'm embarrassed about it? I wouldn't. But mm-hmm. I can make that funny, and then yeah. that that laughter might break down a few barriers and it ultimately the main thing I'm doing for it is it gives me a sense of massive validation and then I'm walking around like a dog with two dicks for a couple of days which is great. <laughs> um, I think um, one of the things that, that people who are outside the industry will sometimes struggle with and, and this has become a bit of a theme already and we're only sort of six episodes in is um, marrying managing your condition if you like or if you want to call it that which is a bit of a over the top phrase, but managing your mental health mm-hmm. with the 
potential ups and downs. Oh yeah. So if you if you're talking about bipolar disorder, for example, uh, you know having, having a bipolar situation where your mood swings can be massively affected by life and then take you to other places. Gigging can be like that anyway. You could go out and have a, a if you're if you're doing a double on a Saturday night, your first gig you might absolutely rip the roof off the place, and then the second place you do it the same and you die of death. How do you um, maybe stop the outcomes of gigs affecting your other issues too drastically? I I think it's just a case of getting back up on the horse for me because. I used to really, when I used to gig before, if I had a really bad gig, I'd always, I used to think, oh, it's, oh it must be, the, the audience is terrible, and this isn't, this is my room, and they're all, and this is the patriarchy, they just don't like women comedians, when really, my material wasn't brilliant, um, and that's why they weren't laughing, um, and I think being in more in control in my perspective of what I am, of who I am, and what I'm saying um, has helped, but I definitely agree with you, I think, it, it, it's 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 kind of like the sweetest irony is obviously people who've got mental health problems are more predisposed to do, be, do comedy. Yet actually doing comedy is really bad for your mental health. And a lot, I think a lot of that, I think, Graham, is the fact that it's all so much nowadays done on social media. All the looking yeah. for gigs, all the networking is done on social media. And you're constantly seeing other acts posting about how they've won this competition, got to the semi-finals of this. And everyone only ever talks about the gigs where they rip the roof off it. Of Never course, talk yeah. about the gig in the arse end of nowhere with three men and his dog and yeah, no they died on the raft. No. <laughs> it's, it's true. I mean, it is absolutely true. I mean, I know people who I've seen have awful awful gigs and uh on social media by 11 o'clock that night the world the world's being told they've smashed it and i think <laughs> uh, it makes me laugh um it yeah. sometimes makes me cringe but i just think if that's what you need to do then you do that yeah but, um i mean i i will sometimes talk about sort of the more challenging gigs i've had but to be honest the worst gigs i've had have been ones that I can rationalise to myself quite easily. And, and I think that's important to be able to say to yourself, well, here's why it didn't go well. And the worst gigs I've had have been those gigs you sometimes get that aren't typical comedy gigs where it's yeah. a sports dinner or something like that after a, after a party or whatever, when no one's really there to see you anyway. And, and uh, the, the hard work and there can be a bit dispiriting. But, you know, the ones I worry about are is if I'm going to a room and the room's doing really well and everyone's everyone's kicked it in the dick and then I go on and yeah. oh, the energy leaves and suddenly <laughs> it's just me and a microphone and I feel like the smallest guy in the world then that's going to be a problem. But um, no, I think I think you're right. People kind of social media is is something that's it's not going away. For those people who are who are listening who aren't in the comedy industry, unless you're someone who's got an agent or you're regularly on TV, almost all of your comedy work comes through Facebook. Yeah. Um, and that can be really hard. Which is mad. Not only are you seeing people say they've smashed it, you're also potentially applying for 50 gigs and not even getting a reply because the people who've posted the oh. advert are getting 100 emails for three spots and they've not got the time to reply to everything. So it's, oh. it, that can be quite dispiriting. But then... Um, how have you found support within the industry? I've, I was, I've, I've said this to everyone, I was really surprised at how, generally speaking, you know, 99% of the people in the industry oh, yeah. seem really supportive, really open, want everyone to do well. Have you found that as well? Yeah, I think I, I agree. Um, I think um, I've made some amazing friends um, in the industry and met some really lovely people. And there's a few bad eggs. Um, and unfortunately, I've slept with most of them. But out of everyone else... <laughs> 
Um, any single male comedians who are listening, any opportunity, Graham, call me. No, um, I no, I do generally think it's a really welcoming, especially like it's not mainly about the Yorkshire like Northern circuit. Everyone's really nice, and that's one of the things I enjoy most about gigs is just chatting with other comics. Um, I did the gig for. Becky Heaviside in Hartworth and I'd not met her and I'd not met um Kerry Robinson before. Um and we they were lovely, brilliant, really funny and we had a brilliant chat, we had a had a lovely time and it's that and I thought, you know, I can't believe I've you know, stopped doing this. It's honestly lovely folk and I think it's I know that it's, what's weird is in sort of you meet other people normally and you wouldn't really talk about your mental health and stuff, but with comics I think it's something that's everyone's very like open about and I think because a lot more people are talking about it on stage like now I've come back to them a few years ago when I first started definitely um which I think allows other people to talk about it. So I, was I, was there. There. Yeah. I was like you know you gave a shout out to the people I know so I've I've done that gig for Becky at top is it top crack at the hop yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's a lovely little room um, and it's a really nice environment and uh, and I know Becky quite well and I know Kerry very well because Kerry and I actually made made our comedy debuts together and she now works for me in my day job oh. um, I hired her about three months after our um, comedy showcase to work 40 hours a week with me so She's very um, good and I'm hoping she'll come on here at some point but we'll see um, but you have led me into I'm not just waffling on about it for no reason you've led me into something else I like to talk about so in the particularly in the media and the narrative in the last couple of years and I think quite rightly but um, it, it may be an issue. Um, the, the mental health conversation has largely been around men, um, yeah. which I think is, was probably necessary because, you know, I think that the, the figures speak for themselves. But in an industry, as comedy is, which is dominated by straight white men, um, in mm-hmm. terms of numbers and, you know, sort of the uh, at all levels, you'll find so many more straight white men than anything else doing comedy. How do you find um, the discussion around mental health for women these days? Is it is it something that we run the risk of it getting brushed aside because everyone's so keen to talk yeah. about the need for men to talk that, that sometimes women's issues get ignored? Yeah, I think I, I can totally understand why people are talking about male mental health because men, I think whereas women, we like to, you know, talk things out and actually reach out to people. Men kind of, you know, are not encouraged to do that and sort of you go in on yourselves and it's harder to get that support. Whereas um, with women, we are more open, but I do worry that women's mental health is sort of like dismissed. And I feel like a lot of women's problems are sort of like dismissed in general, especially like um, to go back to borderline personality disorder. I think if it was not a disorder that was mainly, I think about 80% of people diagnosed or 90%, it's quite a high statistic are women. If it was men, I think people would know more about it because it's a disorder that affects women. I don't think it's researched nearly enough or sort of given the importance it needs. So there's a stigma of it. I wonder sometimes whether there is a sort of sexist element to it. Um, but with women, um, I, I, I think we just need to hear more about women's voices and women's problems generally um, without it sort of, you know, being sort of diminished or anything like that. Because, I mean, sort of not to go off point too much, but one of the things I think that prevents women from going into stand-up comedy is this is something that I've only really felt since I've come back as a single woman um, because I used to sort of gig with, like, you know, a group of people. Um, 
going going to like gigs really late at night and coming back from gigs really late at night on your own on your own and i don't think it's something that male comedians have to think about is your own safety um but it's something that i'm very acutely aware of and even if i can stay to the end of the gig i sometimes i often won't and it's because i'd rather get home um, I think it's um, it's a really valid point. I mean, you know, and I don't think you are going off point necessarily too much because I think there's there needs to be that support network there um, for you know everyone in the industry, not just blokes. And I remember I um, I had a gig with uh, a London-based female act. She she was doing an Edinburgh preview um, when she was still likely to be going to Edinburgh this year, even though it's now gone. Um, mm. She came to Huddersfield from London to do a gig at a night I run um, and we made it a, a special night and whatever and um, and then she was driving back down to London after the gig and she she messaged me on Facebook at about half past 11 midnight saying I don't know whether to get a hotel or just to have a sleep in my car and I was like please tell me you'll get a hotel please do, don't just yeah. sleep in your car because I just thought like you say I mean if I'm if I mean I'm a big big fat but bald beardy guy <laughs> if I'm asleep in the car more for you if you try and get in my car you know, yeah. But you know, there's a there's a part of me that feels sort of fiercely protective of of that element, and I've always tried to have lineups on my gigs that are selected on merit, but also selected with some element of diversity, because there is nothing more dull than going oh, yeah. to an open mic night and hearing eight men do ten minutes on being a straight white guy. And wanking. It's, yeah, I mean, we're, we're all right. We all like to crack one out, but we don't like to have, <laughs> hear about it for two and a half hours. Do you know what I mean? It's, no. and, and, and I'm guilty of that because my material is based around it because it's what I know because I wank all the time. But it's... Um, <laughs> it's, good. it's I think it's... It's good for your immune system. Keep at it. Exactly, it's good for yeah, immune especially time. during now. I'm just trying to fight the COVID. <laughs> uh, but I think... Um, you know, I think that, that women's issues can sometimes get put to one side, and and then you know you get bad jokes in on Facebook when women's slots are advertised, and men are like, "Oh, I'm funny, I can put a dress on," and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I can. I can that that kind of cul- yeah. yeah, exactly. And that kind of culture then means that when really important stuff needs to get discussed, maybe it doesn't get heard. And I think that's that's why I'm glad you've come on here, really, because you've said oh, a lot of stuff you. that that has, has um, informed me and hopefully informed everyone else as well a little bit. So um, what's the future look like for you then in a comedy sense? What, what, what Obviously, we don't know what it's going to look like when the lockdown gets lifted and when we're all back, you know, to, to normal or some, what normal will be. But what's your plan longer term? Is it something that will be a, a, a fun distraction from your normal life or will it be something you want to do more seriously in the future? I would love to do it more seriously but it depends on the industry um mm-hmm. I kind of feel like you know it's kind of out of my control I think some of it you know is luck and hard work but I think sometimes a lot of it is your face has to fit you have to be in the right sort of stage in your career at the right time I've seen acts you know go to Edinburgh absolutely smash it and think yeah you're going to have a career I'm going to see you on telly in a year and that just doesn't happen so you, you just don't know um but I would like to get more gigs um, I would like to um, do my own Edinburgh show. This is my, my, if, if I can only do this, then I will be very happy. I want to do my own Edinburgh show. I have a title. I have an idea, um, and I want to do it if the Edinburgh Fringe ever becomes, you know, if we're allowed to do it next year or maybe the year after. But I want to do a solo show. That's what I want to do. Be brave and do it. Um, mm. That's what I want to do. Well, that's, that's, it's um, it's admirable that you've got that sort of target because a lot of people, 
they are globally, so I just want to get on telly, or it's I just enjoy doing it. So you've got some sort of plan, which is really good. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you'll get there. Um, so, as long as Edinburgh actually comes back, which I think it will. I think, yeah. I think you know, 2021, I'd imagine there'll be, you know, a fringe up there. How many people will have sort of stuck with comedy? I don't know. I, I have a suspicion that it might be a slightly um, smaller pool of acts than normal, but I don't know because there's fucking loads of comedians now. I mean, I'm guilty of that. Yeah. I joined 18 months ago, you know, I only started doing it then, but there's loads of comedians everywhere now. Yeah. Um, so, and there's more coming all the time. So I don't know what happened, but I think it's really good. So I've got one more question for you. Okay. Um, as we draw to a close, and this is something I've been asking everyone who's come on. Um, and it is that if you could um, effectively take away all of your mental health issues for the rest of your life, so you're in a good place, you haven't got any of these conditions. You haven't, you know, you you know that for the rest of your life you'll be an even keel, happy, and that's that. But the cost was that you don't get on stage again and perform. Would you do that? Oh. Mm, that's a very hard one, but I'd have to. I'd I'd have to keep all my. It's psychological trauma and many mental health issues because the mere thought of not getting attention from strangers. But no, because genuinely, nothing makes me happier than having an amazing gig. Like the buzz that I get from it, like I can't tell you. It's it's um it's better to me. It's better than sex. But I've not had sex in a very long time. Graham, honestly, it is you know not had good sex in even longer. It's amazing and I'd. As much as I hate like crying at home um and drinking, um I'd I'd keep doing that and yeah, still a gig. Yeah. Well that's um six or six so far out of the, the pod. Not one person has said they would give it up, and I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't. I might start running a sweepstake on how many episodes in will be before someone says, "Yeah, fuck it, I don't want." To I want stability. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. Well, listen, it's been fascinating talking to you, and I've really enjoyed Thank it. You. I'm sure we'll gig together when all this is over, and it'll be nice to meet you face to face. So definitely. Thanks, so much, Maxine. Thanks, Cheers. Bye. Bye. So um, that was episode six with Maxine Wade, and uh, yeah, it was a good one. I enjoyed that. It was a good chat. Um, we have got some more episodes already in the can. Next week is one that I'm looking forward to for entirely selfish reasons, um, because one of my um, very best friends, who is probably the only person in the comedy industry that I knew on a personal level before starting out as a comedian um it's my good friend often mistaken for my father mr jem stewart um who as well as being a uh, a part-time comic um he probably doesn't gig as much as i'd want him to he's a very funny comedian who does um a lot of work uh, around sort of language and pedantry and and stuff like that um 
he's on next week. He's also a, a, a poet and a performance poet, um, so he's really interesting to talk to from that point of view as well because he comes at performance from a few angles. But as well as that, he is a uh, recovering alcoholic who um, is now uh, an addiction counsellor specialising specialising in alcoholism. So he, um, I don't want to use the phrase poacher turned gamekeeper, but it's sort of like that, I suppose. Um, he's someone who had real issues with alcohol abuse in his past and then has um, used his experiences and his expertise to retrain and now offer help to those people. Uh, we talk about um, his reluctance to go down the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps route, which works for a lot of people but not for him, um, and the potential pitfalls uh, of being someone with an alcohol um, addiction whose stock in trade, if you like, in comedy is going to be somewhere surrounded by alcohol um, and how he manages to navigate that potential minefield. So next week we've got Jem Stewart and then also in the can we've got another good friend of mine, um, young Sam Sam Cook, SJ Cook, um, who is like a five-year-old, I think, um, is uh, is very young, uh, but he's someone I started out doing comedy with a couple of years ago um, and he has a very recent experience of going through the process of being diagnosed and treated for an active condition which has really kicked in during lockdown. Um, so Sam uh, SJ Cook is coming up soon and we also have the fantastic Alex Stringer, our second female guest coming up in a, in a few weeks time as well. Um, we had a really good chat about various issues. Um, again, substance uh, abuse comes up in that one, but the, the sort of intrinsic link to your mental health and, and mental health conditions. So they're already in the can, and I'm in the process of trying to book a few more guests. But thanks for listening. Do tell your friends, like, subscribe, send us some feedback, tell me what you think, because um, I don't just want to be sitting here talking out into the ether every week. So let us know what you think. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Sparks of Madness is hosted by Graham Rayner and is a Gag and Bone Man comedy production.